Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I think it's fair to say this is not your typical election. I am not a natural politician. Everybody loves me. Have you always told the truth? I've always tried to. Hillary Clinton is a bigot. These are racist ideas, race-baiting ideas, anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant, anti-women. I know more about ISIS than the generals do. No, Donald, you don't. Have you even read the United States Constitution? Fathers will be able to say to their daughters, you too can grow up to be president. We need a political revolution. Nobody knows the system better than me. Really? Which is why I alone can fix it. USA! 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 From the New York Times, this is The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. The preoccupation with the health of Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton and the way they've treated their medical histories feels like so many things in this campaign, uniquely strange, secretive, and theatrical. (coughs) Every time I think about Trump, I get allergic. If, If your health is as strong as it seems from your review of systems, why not share your medical records? Why not? Well, I have really no problem in doing it. I I have it right here. I mean, should I do it? I don't care. Should I do it? But really, it's nothing new. There's a long history of voters demanding the medical records of presidential candidates. There's a long history of health problems that the public deserve to know about. And there's a long history of the candidates trying to hide those details. John Dickerson starts us off back in 1955. So on September 24th, 1955, Eisenhower is in Denver, and he's supposed to be on vacation. He spends the day golfing and then eats a double hamburger and then gets a series of phone calls from back east that make him irritated. And the reason I outline all of those things is that later he then had a heart attack, and there was a lot of speculation about which of those things had set him off. John Dickerson is my favorite person to talk to about political history. He's full of overlooked and forgotten stories from past presidential campaigns. John, of course, is the moderator of CBS's Face the Nation. He's co-host of Slate's Political Gab Fest, and he just wrote a new book. It's called Whistle Stop, My Favorite Stories from Presidential Campaign History. In any event, he has the heart attack, and the press corps following Eisenhower is told that he had suffered a digestive upset in the night. In other words, he had a a tummy ache. He had indigestion. Nothing to see here. And for about 12 hours, that was the story, that Eisenhower was just having a little bit of a stomach issue. After that period of time, though, the White House did report that the president had a heart attack, uh, and the White House press corps was obviously uh, very angry. So the first instinct was to deceive. The first instinct was to deceive, and then the second instinct was to spin. So what happened was when they finally told the press corps, they said, well, the the president's doctor didn't want to excite him by having it become a press story. His heart was, you know, in this touchy place. And there was no attempt at secrecy. It was just merely his health they were trying to protect. And they didn't want to put him on a stretcher and carry him to the hospital because that might have um, involved dangerous exertion. And, you know, it was only a small cover-up after all. It was just 12 hours, and this is all for Eisenhower's health. 
so that was then the second instinct, which, as with today, uh, only made the reporters more suspicious. Well, I want to talk about what followed that heart attack, because it does tell us something about the history of disclosure, and it brings us right to this moment and the question of how much should we know and in what level of detail. So Eisenhower has this heart attack, there's deception, and then what happens? And then his press secretary, James Haggerty, basically drowns the reporters in information. And he basically, he opened the bag for the reporters and told them everything. He told them things they wanted to know, things they didn't need to know, things they didn't think they needed to know, but he told them anyway. And he basically kept issuing these medical bulletins about the progress of um, Eisenhower's health and all the monitoring that was going on and, and down to each and every last little detail in order to, I mean, he had two issues. One was the health question, was Eisenhower healthy enough, A, to be president, and then B, to run for re-election? And then there was the transparency issue. And these things both worked in tandem. So by burying the reporters, they solved the transparency issue. You know, yes, we may have been a little slow for the 12 hours. You didn't know about the heart attack. But as you can see by all of this information we're piling up around you, we have no fundamental transparency problem. Then by piling up the information, all of which was relatively benign, and in fact, became so boring as to seem routine, then the president's condition went from being as serious as a heart attack to being incredibly benign. Well, just how drowning were those reporters in details? So the heart specialist, Dr. Paul Dudley White, uh, was called in to to head the team of physicians. And um, he reported that at his first press conference, that um, the president had had a normal bowel movement that was uh, in the list of particulars that he gave. And, you know, this was not the kind of thing you talked about at the dinner table. And this apparently put the Associated Press in quite a fix because Dr. White had announced it. And this was indeed a part of the official fact pattern uh, in terms of the president's health. Uh, It had been released as an official piece of information. And so the Associated Press, their duty was to convey that information to people. But on the other hand, did they really want to have this particular piece of important bodily record on the new front page of the newspapers all over the country? Uh, and in the end, the Associated Press kept with their duty and passed on the fact that the president was regular. <laughs> Great note to end that on. So when we think about overcompensation for the perception that you've been too secretive with your medical health, have we arrived at a moment we have Donald Trump on the Dr. Oz show talking about hay fever and how often he gets it. And we now have Hillary Clinton disclosing almost each and every medicine she's on or has been on. Are we are we reaching a moment of overcompensation or not? I don't know. I don't think quite yet. I mean, John McCain set the standard, which was as, you know, as Barack Obama was healthy, fit, and uh, either explicitly or implicitly making comparisons with McCain's age. And also there had been Republicans in the 2000 race who had essentially whispered, some of them even being John McCain's colleague, that he was kind of too much of a hothead for the presidency. Uh, McCain decided to drown all of that in over a thousand pages of medical documents, which showed that he was healthy, um, showed he had no psychiatric issues. And then at, at a certain level, then started to show, wow, this is a guy who's been through a whole lot, you know, in the service of his country uh, and keeps on ticking. So it became a kind of reverse of the intended effect, which was to make him, you know, talk of his age when you looked at his medical records 
uh, some people thought, wow, he can handle this job. He's handled a, a lot worse. And that's what people, I think, are, you know, there's got to be a middle place between doctor's notes that sound like press releases, and certainly Donald Trump's original one in particular sounded as though it had been written by Donald Trump himself, who mostly testified to his Adonis-like uh, health without using any of the terms that physicians actually use. There's got to be somewhere between what McCain did and then those letters that are written like press releases, which really don't tell us much of anything. In this campaign, medical conspiracies have run kind of rampant. And that's partly because of the absence of information. Supporters of Donald Trump suggest that Hillary Clinton is feeble and unwell. And then information comes out and actually seem to reinforce that narrative, even though the original one was pretty much conjured in people's imagination. How much is the presidential campaign history filled with such conspiracy theories? You know, there's been a fair amount of it. It's, um, I mean, there's, of course, in Kennedy's case, in that case, the conspiracies were maybe undershot the mark. John, I'm not sure people remember just how many medical problems JFK had. What, what were they? Well, there was the rumor that he had Addison's disease and a debilitating disease. And he, uh, during the campaign, he was taking steroids and other drugs to ward off the symptoms, which meant so he not only had the disease itself, but then there was the effect of the drugs itself. And so the rumors were there, but none of the truth of it was uh, fully known at the time. So as opposed to a situation where you have lots of you know, conspiracy theories and then the truth doesn't seem to be as exciting, in this case, uh, the truth was more exciting. He was sicker than people thought. Uh, part of the reason that the inquiry kind of stopped is that his physician wrote a very cleverly worded statement that kind of got around uh, Addison's disease, pretended he sort of didn't have it, uh, even though he did. So in the end, the conspiracies probably didn't go far enough in Kennedy's case. I think the, the more recently, the ones that have struck me that I didn't know about and that give you some sense of how kind of this is threaded throughout is in 1976, Gerald Ford writes in his book, A Time to Heal, which is about his presidency. But when he's running against Reagan in 76, you know, Ford was very fit, played football in, in college, was, a, was an avid skier, released his medical reports for the purposes of basically trying to draw out Reagan, make an issue of his age use them as a weapon to say, you know, if Reagan doesn't release his medical reports, uh, he must be hiding something. So th that was one area. And the other that strikes me from, from recent memory is in 1988, Lee Atwater and uh, John Sununu, who was the chief of staff for George Herbert Walker Bush, spread the rumor that uh, Michael Dukakis had had psychiatric issues or had been treated and seen a psychiatrist for some sort of mental issue, and they were conjuring or hoping to conjure the kind of um, mental health. I mean, they're basically just trying to put him outside the mainstream, but also Thomas Eagleton, of course, who'd been the vice president for 18 days under George McGovern, had ultimately had to drop out because of his having to see a psychiatrist. So there was a, there was a kind of narrative structure there. And this was a kind of rumor based on absolutely nothing, just totally made it up. Reagan was asked about it at a press conference about the medical records and whether Dukakis should release it. And he said, well, I'm not going to make fun or pick on, I can't remember which word he used, but I'm not going to make fun of an invalid. Wow. Which was a pretty striking thing. And of course, it was reported and you know went around the world, and, and Reagan ultimately apologized for having said it. It's very uh, Trumpian. Then it forced Dukakis into having to bring his doctor forward and, and uh, speak about the fact that there had never been any such issue. But that was a way in which the rumor was really built out of whole cloth and was damaging. And then, 
president of the United States from the official position helped uh, carry it along. You mentioned Reagan before, John, and Reagan was our first really old president. How influential do you think age is in the background as an animating force in our national discussion about health in this campaign? Yeah, I think it's I think it's there. Now, since you've got two candidates who are older, there's it's not a distinguishing factor in the way it was with John McCain and Barack Obama, where one can kind of play the play the age card as much. And you tend to have voters who are older doing the voting, which is interesting because with McCain, sometimes I would talk to older voters and and they would say, well, gee, I know how I am at this age, and I know I'm not as sharp as I once was, so I'm not sure I want somebody in the presidency right. who's that same age. So I'm not quite sure how it cuts. There's also a gender question, which is do we treat an older man, Trump 70, who has a young son differently than a woman who is younger, Hillary Clinton, but is nevertheless, you know, because of the way older women are seen versus older men, and the long-standing different ways we see that, how does that play out in voters' minds? Thank you, John. I appreciate you being here. Thanks, Michael. It was real fun. Over the last 25 years, the world has witnessed incredible progress, from dial-up modems to 5G connectivity, from massive PC towers to AI-enabled microchips. Innovators are rethinking possibilities every day. Through it all, Invesco's QQQ ETF has provided investors access to the world of innovation, be a part of the next 25 years of new ideas by supporting the fund that gives you access to innovative companies. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in prospectus at Invesco.com. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show, it's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we've teamed up with the New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half before you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories when you're in the mood to hear something good but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. So yeah, age is an undeniable factor in how we think about the health of these two candidates. When supporters of Donald Trump were promoting false conspiracy theories about Hillary Clinton's health, that was about age. And those conspiracies preyed on America's divided and unsettled views of older women in power. On The Dr. Oz Show, Donald Trump, who's 70, played up his own sense of youthfulness. When you look into the mirror, how old is the person you're looking at? What do you see? I would say I see a person that's uh, 35 years old. No, I mean, I feel, I feel the same. I feel the same. I mean, I, I, you know, Tom Brady's a friend of mine. We play golf together, a great quarterback. He's a phenomenal guy, great athlete. And I'm with him, and I, I feel the same age as him. It's crazy. That brings us back to Reagan, who was about to turn 78 when he left office. 
And as a candidate, the person who asked him the uncomfortable questions about his age was Dr. Larry Altman. In fact, to the degree we even expect presidential candidates to share the intimate details of their medical histories, it's because of Dr. Altman. For decades, he was the rare reporter at the New York Times whose byline carried the initials MD, and he was the first to interview candidates and put together their medical histories. His breakthrough interview was with Reagan in 1980. I asked him to tell us about that first sit-down with a White House candidate. Well, Ronald Reagan had given me permission to talk to his doctors. I examined his records, and I came uh, after requesting that, knowing a lot about his medical history. And I then asked him questions in an interview with him, which I had also asked for. And I had noted the absence of certain information in his doctor's chart, and I uh, wondered about it. And I asked him several questions, and one of it had to deal with the fact that he had talked a lot about his father, but he hadn't talked about his mother. And when Hmm. I asked him about his mother, he told me that she had been senile for a few years before she died. And... That led to further questions on my part, and I also asked him the question if senile was the word in those days. Alzheimer's had not become a household word. And uh, in his words, senility, and I asked him if he developed it, what would he do? And he said he'd resign. Uh, He said he assumed his doctors would be following him for that, and they would let him know. I mean, that ends up being a remarkably, almost tragically prescient question and it turned out that your inquiry was way ahead of its time, right? Well, there was no evidence that he had uh, Alzheimer's or dementia or any form of dementia at the time I interviewed him or so far as I can determine when he was in the White House. He developed or his diagnosis of Alzheimer's came roughly five years after he left office. And the questions about his age were what triggered part of the questions about uh, whether he'd become senile. But there were questions among his political rivals and enemies who raised questions that his campaign style, his uh, administrative style, and in effect running as a chairman of the board and uh, allowing other people to do a lot and then contradicting himself in many times during the campaign led his rivals to say, oh, well, uh, he must have uh, the symptoms of senility and so forth. But there was uh, that was on a political level, and there was uh, no evidence that he was in 1980 or, you know, through 1989 when he left office. So many of these questions feel like they are, by definition, invasive. And I guess that just comes with the, the job that you have at the Times. And I wonder if there's a, if there's is such a thing as being too invasive given the stakes of a president and their health? Well, I don't think it's being invasive because individuals who run for office or celebrities give up a lot of their privacy in American society and other societies. So if you're running for office, you know that you should be asked about your taxes and disclose that. You should be asked about your health. That's come to be something candidates release letters from their doctors or interviews. And therefore, I don't see it as invasive. The ones I have done have always been with the permission of the candidate given to his doctors or her doctors to uh, speak on their behalf. And 
it's done openly. I was going to say, have any candidates rebuffed any of your questions or just looked at you and said, Larry, there's no way I'm telling you the answer to that? No, I haven't found that in the interviews I've done. I have found candidates who wouldn't agree to interviews, but I did not uh, find anybody who wouldn't answer the questions that I posed. Well, we'll get to who refused you in a little bit. After Reagan had left office and after he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, it was former President Jimmy Carter who made a really interesting proposal. I'm sure you're familiar with it. And it was that an outside person, somebody not in the employment or or had a relationship with a candidate, should do an independent medical analysis and release it to the public and tell us whether this person was fit to be president. Why do you think that didn't happen? And do you think it should happen? I don't think it's uh, feasible, and I think that's why it hasn't happened. The proposals, similar proposals, have been made for decades, even before, long before Carter. And uh, people haven't thought through the implications of uh, how you would do it, who the people would be, who would be chosen, how they would be chosen, and what criteria would be used, and what information the patient in that sense of the word, the candidate, would allow an independent doctor to examine. And if suggestions were made, you know, how far do you go in terms of asking for more tests and so forth? One of the reasons we talk about the idea of independent medical analysis in this campaign is is the now famous Donald Trump letter of recommendation from his doctor, which was written in this really Trumpian language of, you know, his physical prowess and his fitness. It was, it was kind of over the top. And we later learned from that doctor that he had done it in five minutes in a car. It didn't seem to represent like real medical rigor. So my question to you, Larry, is should we trust the medical statements from the doctors who've treated these patients for so long? Is it possible that you can kind of get someone, especially someone who knows you and likes you, to say what you need them to say for the public to have confidence in your health? Well, whatever they are saying, it has to be with the approval of uh, of the candidate, uh, the patient of the doctor, and therefore the doctor is writing as an advocate of his or her patient. Do you generally trust these statements? Do you take them at face value? I think you have to take them at face value, but then you look and read and see what's omitted, what you think should on the basis of what information has been given, what should be included, and if there are discrepancies, then you have something to go back to. This is what they said. This was on the record. This information said X, or this information was not included, and you had wondered why at the time. And when surprises occur, as did with Hillary Clinton, it's an issue where the candidate is caught by surprise by an event that you can't predict but has uh, effects and jolts a campaign, uh, in this case, the pneumonia uh, in recent days from Mrs. Uh, Clinton. I wonder who began to close that previously open door to you, to medical records, to doctors, to rigorous candidate interviews about health. When did they start to say no? It feels like that is a development over the last five or 10 years, right? No, more than five or 10 years. I think it's, I can't date it to you exactly, but certainly President Obama would not agree to an interview and he would not allow me or other doctors or other uh, reporters to talk to his doctor. Why not? He seemed so fit 
the best gas, and that's what it is, is the gases they were very sensitive to is smoking. And tried to hide it to some degree. Well, was he continuing to smoke? Uh, there was no hiding the fact that he had smoked. But was he? would he be smoking as a president? And if president, how could he be smoking in a building or in facilities that are supposed to be smoke-free? And he was having difficulty breaking the habit. And nobody ever caught him smoking, so one has to assume that he gave up smoking in the White House. If not, nobody has figured out where he did the smoking. I want to ask you, so far, given what you've seen, what worries either you or the doctors you've talked to about the health of Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton? Well, the worries were from, in Trump's case, the way the bizarre letter was written and the interview with the doctor afterwards and the circumstances of how he had written it. And there were more uh, gushing praises without specific data. And that was raising questions about Mr. Trump. With Hillary, she had had serious illnesses in uh, recent years. And it was felt that the information she put out was less than what she should have put out uh, in terms of many people wanting to know about her health. And she hadn't put out any information in over a year after she was nominated. And that just raised further questions as to why no update. So I think we began this inquiry here in this episode with the idea in our heads that the emphasis on health and the surprises that might lurk out there in the candidate's medical records was really unique. And I I get the feeling from conversation with you and with John Dickerson that, that this campaign may actually not be that unique at all, given the history of health in presidential campaigns. Do you think that's the right conclusion to draw? Yeah, I don't think that this is unique. Uh, The only thing unusual about it is we have two candidates who are two among the oldest ever to run for president. And that puts the emphasis on age again, as it did back with Reagan. But I don't think the issues of health are any different. And uh, every cycle, I think you're going to see issues of health brought up. But uh, I think it's the role of journalism to keep pressing and asking questions so that the candidates have to, in one way or another, answer the questions about their health. Before I let you go, I want to ask you about one thing Trump said, get your medical opinion on it. Donald Trump told Dr. Oz that the form of exercise that he prefers is campaigning in a warm room where the heat turns the normal normal gesticulations and activities of campaigning into exercise. In your medical opinion, is that exercise? I guess you can define exercise any way you want. Uh, I suppose opening and closing one's mouth is a form of exercise, but generally not thought that way. So we, we are exercising at the moment, aren't we? Yes. <laughs> In a perfect world, how exactly would candidates for president approach public disclosure of their health? Well, I guess from my point of view is that they would uh, allow myself or someone like myself to interview all the doctors under whose care the candidate has been and interview the candidate and not under a rush condition and uh, do it in advance so that it's the information is out there as uh, we have done in the times for since 1980 until recently. Well, Larry, thank you for decades of this kind of disclosure, and thank you for being on the run-up. 
Well, thank you very much. Speaking of disclosure, over the past 72 hours, here's what we've learned. Hillary Clinton's pneumonia is mild. She takes vitamin B12 as needed, and she's on blood thinner. Donald Trump weighs 236 pounds. He takes a lipid-lowering agent, and if you don't know what that is, ask your father. And he had his last colonoscopy on July 10th of 2013. But does any of this actually influence how Americans are going to vote in November? My colleague Andy Mills asked them in Times Square because it's right next door to us and because it's America's public square. I think that if you're running for the presidency, um, that you should be able to know what the health report is of, say, Hillary. I'd like to know, is she going to be able to be in there for the term that she's going for? And is there anything that could come out uh, in the medical histories of either candidate that might make you change who you might vote for? No. Which way are you leaning when it comes to the candidates? I'm Republican. So you're leaning toward Trump? Yes. yes. If, if it turned out that Trump has got no, some I kinda, illness. I mean, this is a really hard year this year because of who we have to vote for. I mean, I'm going to keep that real. <laughs> To me, because it's, it's a matter of, will they do a good job or not? And not a matter of like, oh, they have some medical condition. I think the fact that people are making it into some, such a huge deal is really silly. Do revelations about their records and about the state of their health sway you one way or the other in the election? Honestly, no. No impact at all. You vote for the person that you believe in, the vision that you you know, you know want to see. So. Yeah, I'm going to vote for Hillary simply because I think she's the more stable of the two. And is there anything in her health or her health records that might sway you from voting for her to wanting to vote for Donald Trump? Uh, no, because I'm pretty sure he's crazy, and that's more dangerous than her dying in office. That's it for The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. A quick medical disclosure. I drink martinis, and then I get migraines. Could there be a connection? We'll see you back here on Tuesday. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public. The list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if the sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council.